Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Wild EM Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Trong, and this is a podcast about bringing you better care out there. Wild EM is my attempt at helping medical professionals, outdoor professionals, and enthusiasts at giving better care out there in the wilderness setting. So today on the show, we are going to talk about altitude sickness. If you travel to altitude at elevations above 2,000 to 2,500 meters, it will result in hypobaric hypoxia. Hypobaric because pressure, as we travel to higher elevation, there is a drop in barometric pressure. And hypoxic because as the barometric pressure drops, so does the partial pressure of oxygen in the air. The result of this hypobaric hypoxia can lead to pathological states known as acute altitude illness. This encompasses acute mountain sickness, or AMS, high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, also known as HAPE. To better understand how we get to these pathological states and how to treat them, a bit of physiology is needed. But don't worry, we won't dive deep into the dark corners of altitude physiology here because, well, A, I think there is more relevant stuff to discuss for clinical care, and B, well, frankly, I'm just not smart enough to understand all of this stuff. Physiology. So as stated, the higher you go, the lower the partial pressure of oxygen gets in the air. To put this in perspective, for you medical professionals out there, Someone going up to 1,500 meters will have an average O2 sat of 95%, which will drop in turn to 91% at about 3,000 meters and significantly drop to an average of 78% at 4,500 meters. The point I'm trying to make here is that the reduction in oxygen saturation does not decrease in a linear fashion, and there's a point where it literally falls off the cliff. The oxygen saturation curve is an important concept to understand, not just for altitude stuff, so maybe we'll have to dig a bit deeper into this one at another time. So back to our physiology, we are now going to break this down into respiratory physiology and cardiovascular physiology. Respiratory. First, we need to understand that our breathing is regulated by two monitors. One is central in the brain and the other peripheral in the aorta and carotid vessels. The central monitor responds mainly to changes in pH and therefore CO2, while the peripheral monitors respond mainly to changes in O2 levels. So as you go up in altitude, hypoxia is detected by our peripheral monitors, and this brings an increase in ventilation called the hypoxic ventilatory response, or HVR. Of note, as you increase your ventilation, your CO2 levels will go down. This will have an effect to decrease your ventilation, but the net initial effect of hypoxia will be an increase in your ventilation. I think that point's worth repeating. As you increase your ventilation, your CO2 levels will go down, and this will have an effect to decrease your ventilation, but the net effect of hypoxia will still be an increase in your ventilation. Now, all of this happens in just the first few minutes after hypoxia is detected. After this initial phase comes the hypoxic ventilatory decline, where your ventilation slows down and returns to the near normal. This slowing down in ventilation will increase your CO2 levels, which will trigger the hypercapnic ventilatory response. This means the increase in CO2 detected by your central monitors will again trigger ventilation to increase. This will take days to operate and is the mechanism behind respiratory acclimatization. 
So to summarize, respiratory acclimatization happens in three phases, with the third one taking days to accomplish. As we'll see later, this is one of the reasons slow ascent is important to acclimatize. Cardiovascular. Okay, so as you go up in altitude, hypoxia increases heart rate both at rest and during exertion. Stroke volume though, which is the amount of blood being ejected by your heart every time it beats, remains unchanged by altitude. Finally, cardiac output, which is the product of heart rate and stroke volume, will also increase and the increase will be proportional to the increase in heart rate, just like we described. Now, what's interesting is after a few weeks, your cardiac output actually comes back down, and this is despite your heart rate remains unchanged. That means the only change is in stroke volume, which declines. So why does your heart pump less blood with each contraction after weeks at altitude? Well, we're not 100% certain here, but it seems that your heart's ability to contract remains intact, and so this could be explained by a reduction in cardiac filling secondary to a reduction in plasma volume. Think about Starling's law here. One last comment on these mechanisms is that they are dependent on our genetics. This is the reason why physical fitness is not predictive of who does well at altitude, but rather how one's genetics influence the above physiological responses to hypoxia at altitude. Okay, we're not going to dive any deeper here, but hypoxia at altitude affects all our major systems, and for a very thorough read on these effects, do check out the book High Altitude Medicine and Physiology by West and all. Pathology. So now that we've briefly covered what happens to your heart and lungs when you go up to altitude, let's see how people get sick. Badness happening because of altitude is all encompassed in what we call altitude sickness. This comprises of acute mountain sickness, or AMS, high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE. AMS and HACE are two disease processes that are on the same continuum, so we'll deal with them first. And later, we'll deal with HAPE, which is a different story and in a category of its own. AMS, acute mountain sickness. So when should you suspect altitude sickness? Well, first of all, you need to be at altitude, right? But what's less clear is the specific threshold for when they start happening. A good rule of the thumb is over 2,500 meters, but again, this is not a black or white cutoff. Signs and symptoms. Symptoms related to AMS are headache, anorexia, nausea, fatigue, lightheadedness, and dizziness. Per Auerbach's textbook, the headache is usually bilateral, worse at night and during the morning, and also worsened by Valsalva or bending over. Specifically, in AMS, there should be no neurological symptoms aside from the headache and the dizziness, and no abnormal neurological findings on your examination, and no abnormal mentation. Also of note, there are no respiratory symptoms. Though coughing can be expected with altitude, any respiratory symptom, which is thought to be out of proportion with the altitude at which you are at, should prompt you to think about HAPE. There are also no other abnormal findings on exam in a patient with AMS. Now, some studies have shown people to have swelling in their legs or decreased O2 levels from what we would expect at a given altitude, but these findings are not consistent throughout. The timing of these symptoms are anywhere from 6 to 24 hours after the ascent to a given elevation, and they tend to peak on day 3 
and resolve by day four or five for someone remaining at that same given altitude. Diagnosis. There are no specific exam findings, nor any lab tests for that matter. It is a clinical diagnosis. Now scores do exist, such as the Lake Louise score for diagnosis of AMS. Specifically, the Lake Louise score requires a headache to be present to make the diagnosis of AMS. Now, needless to say, these scores are more appropriate for research than in the clinical setting, and if you've done a good H&P and AMS is your likely diagnosis, I think you'd be looking for trouble if you are not making the diagnosis based only on your patient not fulfilling these specific criteria of a certain scoring system. Prevention. So here, the mantra is, one ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Because what I do know is you do not want to be treating AMS on the mountain, but rather preventing it from happening altogether. And with that, acclimatization is the single best way to prevent AMS. The WMS guidelines on altitude sickness recommend that above 3,000 meters, sleeping elevation should not increase by more than 500 meters per day, and should include a rest day about every three to four days, meaning no altitude is gained on that day. Of note, there is little evidence to back up this recommendation, but it is put forward by many experts in the field. There are a few interesting papers looking at pre-acclimatization, meaning if you spend some time at altitude before going up, there is a reduction in AMS and the severity of your symptoms. Though interesting, we won't spend much time on that evidence because the feasibility of this is limited for most people. Moving on to hydration and nutrition, there is no data showing that alcohol, caffeine, and adequate hydration play a role in preventing or getting AMS. Now, from a practical standpoint though, as you have often heard me say in the podcast, absence of proof is not proof of absence of any benefit. Furthermore, AMS or not, your general health and well-being will impact you if you can go to altitude, and therefore eating well and avoiding bad substances is always good advice. Now, on an individual basis, depending on the person as well as the trip, pharmacological prophylaxis may be indicated. So now, let's go over the evidence behind some commonly used drugs for AMS. A Cochrane review published in 2017 titled, Interventions for Preventing High Altitude Illness Part 1, Commonly Used Classes of Drugs, found that pooled data from 2,300 participants showed acetazolamide, at a dose of 125mg POBID or twice daily, had a number needed to treat of 8 to prevent AMS, with a confidence interval from the NNT spanning from 7 to 10. These results are very impressive, and are also in keeping with the suggested dosing in the WMS guidelines. Previously, acetazolamide was dosed at 250mg POBID, but a paper by Bastniat and all in 2006 confirmed that the 125mg POBID dosing was just as good. Now if you recall, on episode 7 we covered the radical trial, looking at a dose of 62.5mg POBID, but concluded that it wasn't quite ready for prime time. Much less can be said of dexamethasone for AMS prevention. In the same study, pooled data of the meta-analysis included only 176 patients. The NNT, or number needed to treat to prevent AMS, was 4, which is great, but the confidence intervals ranged from 4 to infinity because of the very small number of patients included. Furthermore, prolonged steroid use can lead to adrenal suppression. 
Now the exact duration of therapy at which time a taper is required will depend on the individual and the dose. In my ED practice, I'll start thinking about this in anyone taking at least 20 milligrams of prednisone daily for 14 days. In Auerbach's textbook, they say to consider this diagnosis after seven days of steroid use. Presumably, this is when using DAX 4 milligrams PO every six hours, so much more than the 20 milligrams of daily pred. But regardless, I think it's good to remember that the risk of adrenal suppression may exist as early as seven days of therapy. The WMS guidelines give the recommendation that DEX can be used as an alternative to acetazolamide for AMS prevention, but it is important to understand that the quantity and quality of the data supporting this is far inferior to the data we just reviewed on acetazolamide, and the risk of adrenal suppression does exist. For all these reasons, I would try to avoid DEX for prevention of AMS and reserve its use for treatment, which we will get to later. More recently, a few papers have looked at ibuprofen for AMS prevention. Looking at one of these papers, an RCT of 86 patients treated with ibuprofen, 600 mg POTID, or three times daily, showed a number needed to treat of four to prevent AMS with confidence intervals spanning from 2 to 33. Though these results are still impressive, it's important to note that AMS was diagnosed in this study using the Lake Louise criteria, which require that a headache be present for the diagnosis of AMS. Therefore, we can wonder if ibuprofen was preventing the altitude disease as a whole, or was it only masking the symptoms of a headache? Also of note, NSAIDs have many bad side effects such as GI upset and kidney issues. So in all, as for DEX, the data supporting ibuprofen use is much less convincing than for acetazolamide. The 2019 WMS guidelines concur, stating that ibuprofen may be considered in patients who have allergies or intolerance to the above alternative options. A second Cochrane review titled Interventions for Preventing High Altitude Illness Part 2 less commonly used drugs, also published in 2017, looked at the use of sumatriptan, magnesium, spironolactone, but the limited evidence led the authors to conclude that they, and I quote, lack the large and methodological sound studies required to establish or refute the efficacy and safety of most of the pharmacological agents evaluated in this review. Therefore, their use is not ready for prime time. Treatment. Okay, so all that prevention we covered just didn't cut it. Now what? Descent, descent, and did I mention descent? If you've got a bad case of AMS, you need to take altitude out of the equation. The WMS guidelines state that in most cases, symptoms typically resolve after descending from 300 to 1000 meters, though this will vary. This will be effective for all AMS cases, and it is the indicated treatment for severe AMS. If the symptoms of AMS are more mild, depending on the circumstances, it may be reasonable to monitor these patients closely at the current altitude, treat their symptoms, and reassess the next day. If descent is not feasible or to help relieve severe symptoms, oxygen can be used. If this is the case, titrate for a saturation above 90%. And last, before moving on to medications, a portable hyperbaric chamber can be used with the goal of getting the patient good enough to descend or when descent is not feasible. But again, and I repeat, it should not be used as a substitute for descent. Okay, on to drugs. 
acetazolamide has also been studied for AMS treatment. The level of evidence here is much less robust than what we have just reviewed for prevention though. A Cochrane review entitled Interventions for Treating Acute High Altitude Illness pooled data from two studies with a total number of 25 patients only. And this showed, quote unquote, uncertain effects of acetazolamide in reduction of AMS symptoms. So moving on to DEX, this same review found one study looking at 35 patients in which half of these patients treated with DEX had full symptom relief at 16 hours compared to none in the placebo group. Pretty impressive despite the small amount of patients in the study. So though both these drugs have limited data on their use, it seems that contrary to prevention, DEX is the better option for treatment of AMS. When used for the treatment of AMS, the dose is 8 mg, either IV, IM, or PO, followed by 4 mg every 6 hours. We'll get deeper into this in part 2, but personally I think that if you are going to use DEX to treat a severe form of AMS, or obviously for HACE, you should also be planning to go down. Using DEX for prophylaxis of AMS, or treatment of a mild form while not planning to go down, or even riskier while continuing to gain altitude, could lead to the very dangerous situation where DEX may be masking some of your early neurological symptoms, which when they manifest at a higher elevation, and despite being on DEX, will leave you in a really bad place. Summary. So for AMS, let's summarize what we've gone over so far. The diagnosis is clinical. You need to suspect AMS in someone having headache, nausea, anorexia, fatigue, or dizziness at altitude, which most of the time should be over 2,500 meters. Remember, though, that any other neurological symptom or concerning respiratory symptom should prompt you to think about HACE and HAPE. And how do we treat AMS? By preventing it. And this is best accomplished with gradual ascent, meaning when you are over 3,000 meters, no more than 500 meters of elevation gain per day, with the rest day every three to four days. On a case-by-case -case approach, you may need pharmacological prophylaxis. If this is the case, the best studied drug is acetazolamide at a dose of 125 milligrams POBID. Dexamethasone and ibuprofen also have some data to support their use for prophylaxis or prevention, but it is much less robust than the data for acetazolamide and therefore they would not be my recommended first choices for prevention. Finally, treatment. If symptoms are mild and descent will remain possible, observation and symptom relief may be considered, but for any severe cases or failure to improve after an observation period, descent is the way to go. Oxygen may be applied to help with symptom relief during or when descent is not feasible, and in the same line of thought, hyperbaric chambers may be used in order to get a patient better to descend, but none of these therapies are a substitute for descent when feasible. And on to drugs. Contrary to prevention, dexamethasone should be your go-to for the treatment of AMS. The data for acetazolamide for treatment of AMS is much less convincing, but if used for treatment, the appropriate dose is 250 mg POBID, contrary to the 125 mg dose for prevention. Alright, so we've run a bit longer today than the usual episode, and we're going to wrap up part 1 of Altitude Sickness right now. On part 2 in the next episode, we will cover haste and hate. 
So I hope some of this was useful for you, and until next time, remember to keep your crampons in the ice. The information contained in this learning material is for general educational purposes only and is not intended to provide specific professional medical recommendations. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and they do not reflect the opinions of any organizations nor members with whom the authors are associated. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship.